All right, guys. Today we are kind of closing one chapter and, and about to open another one. We are in our last week in the book of Psalms. And so we are studying Psalm 34 this week. And then next week we are going to start a long series in the Gospel of John. And so this week we're looking at the topic of fear again. It's come up a number of times throughout the Psalms. But basically what's happened in the life of David is the dark storm clouds of fear have come into his life. And so I think all of us can relate to this experience of sort of a hazy or a foggy fear hanging over our lives. But every once in a while, something comes into our life that is so big and that is so overwhelming that we cannot handle it on our own. And it begins to crush us. And David even got to the point where he says that he was so brokenhearted that his spirit was crushed. And he couldn't revive himself. And yet, in this psalm, he calls us to magnify God with him. It's a testimony that God had rescued him out of his fear. And so, what we're going to see in the text is that we magnify God when he rescues us out of our fear. And we're going to go through a process with David going from fear to awe through his story. So the first thing we're going to see is what we do with fear. So this is how we wrongly respond to our fear, which we all do. And David sets a great example of what not to do. And it's not actually directly in this text, but what's kind of amazing about this text is there's a little intro to it. And we know the exact situation that David was in. It's like a cross-reference to another scripture. And that scripture that gives us the background of Psalm 34 is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. And here's what happened in that story. If you want to follow along with me on the screen, so that would be great. It says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Okay, so here's what's happened thus far in the life of David. He has been sort of exalted as a military hero. He has been anointed as king. In his past, he has amazing military conquests. So we know well the story of David and Goliath. Even if you have no familiarity with the Bible, 
you know the basics of that story. Little guy kills big guy. And David also had in battle set himself apart as an exemplary soldier, killing many other soldiers in battle. And there was this well-known song in Israel that had gone even beyond Israel that David had killed his 10,000s while Saul, the sitting king, had only killed his thousands. And Saul gets wind of this song and jealousy starts to build in his heart and he decides, I am going to kill David. So the storm clouds that are gathering in David's life are the sitting king of the nation that he lives in is trying to kill him. And he knows that it's true because Saul got so angry that he threw a spear at his own son, Jonathan. And Jonathan has come and alerted David, my dad's trying to kill you. And so David, at this point, should have sought the Lord. He should have found a quiet place and sought after God. But here's what he does instead of that. He thinks, who is the most powerful person I can think of who can protect me? And he doesn't go high enough. He doesn't go to God. He goes to a neighboring king named Achish. And he goes to his house. And he's basically looking for protection. He's basically like, hey, listen, Saul's trying to kill me. Would you protect me? Would you help me? He takes matters into his own hands. He uses his own mind to try to solve the problem on his own. But here's the problem. It doesn't work at all. He shows up to Akisha's house and his servants are like, wait, I think this is David. Do you remember the song, David killed his 10,000, Saul killed his thousands? This is him. And so David catches word of this in their midst and he's like, wait a second. They're catching on. To me. And here's what he does in the midst of this incredible fear. Now he's not just afraid of Saul, he's afraid of Achish and his servants because they were enemies. And so he panics. And he does the first thing that comes to his mind he pretends to be insane. Okay, sometimes you read the Bible and, and you think, like, if the Bible says it about somebody who's a hero, then that's what we're supposed to do. Like, every passage in the Bible is a prescription. This is not a prescription. This is a description of somebody doing something real dumb. So he's gotten himself in this mess, and then to get himself out of the mess, he pretends to be insane. And so he starts carving on things, and then maybe they won't think I'm crazy enough if I do that. So he starts letting spit run down his beard. And I don't know how this king fell for this. Like, obviously, he thinks you're going to kill him. He's pretending. He's faking it. But in God's providence, the king is like, seriously, this can't be David. He's a madman. Get him out of here. Okay? So David gets out of there by the skin of his teeth. But here's what we learn about ourselves and how we deal with fear from this passage. When the storm clouds come in and things start to get overwhelming, we panic and we take things into our own hands 
and it makes things worse. Because there are some things in our lives that no matter how much cunning we use, no matter how much power we align with, no matter how much money we get access to, there are some things that are too big, we can't solve them by trying to control them. And so David ends up with a double problem now. Saul's still after him, trying to kill him. But now he has this foolishness that he has to deal with at all. So he's dealing both with, okay, I'm afraid of Saul, and he's dealing with, I've been dumb. You know, I was at this um, camp one time. It was a camp for parents of special needs kids. And I remember uh, was talking to another dad there in a group. And both of us have special needs kids. And he was saying that he was having a conversation with one of his neighbors. And he was describing to this neighbor what it looked like for him to walk closely with God through the various trials of his life. And the neighbor was a naysayer to him. It's like, oh, that's, that's dumb. Like, I don't believe in God. I wouldn't ever trust God the way that you're trusting God. And it just seems like a waste of time to me. And he said, in these conversations, he would always just ask his neighbor this simple question. How's that working for you? Like, seriously, how's it working for you? And I just found it hilarious because he said that question would just like, his neighbor would kind of stare off and then kind of like, with his face admit, like, it's not going well. And I think that basic question is sort of what all of us need to ask. I mean, it's just like a, a basic question, right? It's, there's nothing profound about it. But if you've been walking away from God because of your fear and trying to take control of the situation, taking things into your own hands, trying to deal with it yourself, how's that working for you? Is it going well? How's your anxiety level? How is your fear level? Have you been able to solve your problem in your own strength and your own effort, or have you made it worse? Okay, so we deal with fear by trying to take things into our own hands, and my guess is it's not going well for us. Okay, so if that's what we do with fear, which isn't the best, what should we do with our fear? Okay, so what to do with our fear? Look with me. We're back in Psalm 34 again, verses 8 through 16. David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Okay, so here's what happens to David. 
he leaves the presence of Akish. And he runs where he should have run in the first place, to a cave. And he's in a cave, and it's a place of solitude. And before this time, he had known intellectually, God is good. But his behavior showed he didn't really believe that. He was aligning himself with power. He was trying to solve his problems on his own. He didn't think God would be of any help to him. And yet in that cave, he got on his face before God. And what he knew intellectually sunk down it to his heart. He tasted and he saw that the Lord was good. He had believed it. Now it went down to his soul. And he has learned that there is a gap between what we say we believe and what we're actually living out. And he's not calling us to more intellectual assent, to more knowledge, to more book reading. Maybe he's not even calling us to more Bible reading. But he's calling us to taste something, to see something. You know, I had a friend who was a professional deadlifter. He could deadlift almost 800 pounds, okay? And the way that you get to that point is you not only have to work out a lot and really hard, but you have to eat a really strict diet, okay? So this guy was huge. I mean, probably weighed 260 pounds. But whenever I ate with him, he would always bring his own lunch. Like if you went out to eat with this guy, he'd bring his own lunch. And it was always tuna and raw vegetables. Something like that. But he told me, I was like, man, how do you stay so disciplined? How do you not ever break the diet? Like he just never broke the diet because he was so committed and he said, well, one thing that I do is I'll go in my family room, I'll turn on the TV, and I watch the Food Network. And I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yes. I will watch the Food Network and just, there's something about just watching it and seeing this delicious food that's being made that sort of satisfies that longing for me. And I'm like, no. That, that's, that's totally different. Like, you need to just eat the good food, not just watch the good food being made. And yet I think so many of us in our relationship with God are like that. We're opening the Bible, we're reading it, we're coming to church, we're going to connection group, but we are just watching Christianity happen. We know that God is good, but we're not tasting that God is good. And the difference between knowing and tasting is fearing. It is that you go from seeing God 
as an intellectual idea to someone that you stand in awe of. Okay, what's the evidence that will be present in our lives? What's the test to know if we're just walking in this intellectual knowledge or if we're walking in the fear of God? Not terrified of him, but in awe of him in our lives. He gives us a couple different tests here. First of all, he says that we would be the type of people who keep our tongues from evil and from speaking deceit. Here's what that means. We own up. We stop pretending. Stop acting like we have it all together. Stop trying to deceive other people into thinking that we're something that we're not. We are transparent with our struggles and with our faults. We tell it like it is about ourselves. And we stop gossiping about other people, stop talking about other people, because we recognize that God is the judge, we are in awe of him, and we take ourselves outside of being in the seat of judge. Okay, second test. We stop escaping to evil. Okay, see that in verse 14? Turn away from evil and do good. Okay, here's what I think he's saying. Evil is a way to escape your fears. Whether it's lust or it's pride or it's anger, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get out from under the ominous storm clouds of life, trying to dull your conscience, trying to forget about your problems, trying to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. But when God becomes your fear, You stand in awe of him. You're tasting and you're seeing that he is good. You don't need to escape into sin because you've found him to be your refuge. So you turn away from evil. And then finally, you seek peace with God and others. You see that in the second half of verse 14. Seek peace and pursue it. In other words, you've stopped blaming other people for your problems. You've stopped condemning yourself. You've come to God. You've been honest. You've stopped trying to deceive other people. You recognize that your battle isn't against flesh and blood. And so you make peace in your relationships. Okay, here's the reality. If God wanted to, he could fix all of our problems right now. You think about that? Isn't that kind of annoying? (laughs) Like he could take away all the pain. He could take away all the storm clouds. He could wipe away all the tears. To stand in awe of God, to taste and see that he is good, is to believe that his plan is best and to bow before it. To stop trying to fix it 
to stop trying to control it, and to stop trying to run from it. So the application, right, at this point is really simple. Find your cave. Bow before God. Surrender. Say, listen, I've been trying to fix my own life. I've been trying to do it myself. It hasn't been working, and I am tired of mere intellectual assent. I need you. Okay, so we've seen what we tend to do with fear, what to do with fear, and finally, the most important thing is what God does with fear. Look with me at verses 17 through 22. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now here's one of our biggest fears. We are afraid to take our real fears and our real problems to God because we're afraid that we will be condemned, that we will be rejected, that we will be pushed out. We more readily see God as a judge than as a father. And so we don't come to him, we don't taste and see that he's good because we don't think that there's any goodness there. Here's David. Having run away from his fear into foolishness and pride. So not only is he still afraid, he's also got a guilty conscience. And he's in this cave. And he's made things worse. Maybe he didn't know yet, probably God was holding this back from him, that it would actually get written in the Bible too. Aren't you so glad that all your faults and failings don't end up in the Bible? Like, we're still talking about it. He really messed up. And here he is. He's not only been afraid, he's run away from God into disobedience, and so his spirit is crushed. It's crushed with guilt, it's crushed with disappointment. And you can see him laying in that cave, just broken, can hardly talk. And yet he has said to God, I knew you intellectually, I need to taste you, I need to see you, I need to believe that you're good because my circumstances are not something that he can handle. And God answers him in a really strange way. He doesn't say, okay, I'll take care of it. Saul's not going to try to kill you anymore. He doesn't deal with the thing that David thinks is his problem. God, in his grace, goes a step deeper than that. And this is essentially what he's saying to David and to us. Your fear is not your real problem. 
whatever it is that you're afraid of. Here's the problem. It's why you're afraid of what you're afraid of. Why was David afraid of Saul? Why are you afraid of never getting married? Why are you afraid that you won't get to have kids? Why are you afraid that you'll die prematurely? Why are you afraid that you'll never get your dream job? Here's why we're afraid of what we're afraid of. It's because we believe that if we lose what we think we need, that we will be condemned, that we will be losers, that we will be worthless, that we will not matter. And here's what God says to David and says to all of us. He says, you don't need anything to be precious to me. Here's what pleases God. A crushed spirit. A broken heart. See, if God told us in this passage that there was anything he needed from us in order to love us and tell us that we matter and that we're not condemned, he would be a lot like many of our earthly fathers who are telling us, unless you get A's or unless you perform in sports or unless you please me, then I won't love you. But he's not like that. He's saying, listen, this is all I want from you. Nothing. I want you to believe that I have so much love for you in my heart. In fact, I am love. That you can come to me with your brokenness at your worst, with absolutely nothing to offer me, running for your life, unable to solve your own problems and deal with your own circumstances, and I am going to answer you with this crazy reality. You're not condemned. You're right in my sight. This is what I'm longing for. The real you to come before the real me and to tell me about yourself and for me to say to you, it's okay. I am enough for you. And it is out of that place that David says, magnify the Lord with me. Rejoice in him with me. Taste and see that he's good. Come to him with your nothingness and let him restore to you the joy of your salvation. Let God be God for you. You just be human. Isn't it awesome when we find ourselves in a situation in life where we expected one thing and we get something totally different. I was reminded of that this week when my son Luke reported to me that he was out riding on a bike with one of his friends. They were out in our neighborhood. And by a miracle, they were both wearing bike helmets. And the police department in our area was trying to affirm kids who were wearing bike helmets, apparently. And so a police officer came up to my son, whose name is Luke, and his friend, whose name was also Luke, <laughs> and he said to them, he said, hey guys, come here. I've got something for you. And Luke said what went through his mind is, wait, I think I might have jaywalked <laughs> a little, <laughs> a little bit ago. Like, what did I do? 
I'm about to get in trouble. And he pulls out two Dairy Queen gift cards and gives it to him and says, guys, good job wearing a bike helmet. You got caught doing something good. Guys, that's how God is. Like we feel like the worst thing ever is for us to be needy, for us to be crushed, for us to be broken, for us to have nothing to offer to God. And it's like David is laying on the floor of this cave. A lot of us are in this place of brokenness right now. Our, our spirits feel crushed. We feel like we have nothing to offer. And God is saying to us, yep, that's what I love. Good job. You're not condemned. Okay. How is that possible? There is a tension built into this text. Because do you remember in that second point, starting with verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears hear their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. How is it that God is a moral, morally serious person who holds us accountable for our sins, and yet we can come to him with a crushed spirit that has been crushed in part because of our foolishness and sin and believe that he will accept us? How is that possible? The answer's in a strange place in this passage. It comes from this verse that you just skip right over as you read it. Verse 20. Talking of the righteous person, it says that God keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. One of Jesus' disciples picked up on this when he saw Jesus dying on the cross. See, what happens when somebody is hanging on a cross is normally they survive long enough that the Roman soldiers have compassion on them at the very end, they come along and they break their legs so that their body collapses, they're no longer able to breathe, and they die. John witnessed that Jesus' legs, when he was on the cross, were not broken. He had already died. And he picks this up in John 19:36 and says that this is a fulfillment of Psalm 34. How is it a fulfillment of Psalm 34? This is incredible. When Jesus was on the cross, what was happening was that God was condemning him for our unrighteousness. Our sin was placed on him. Our foolishness was placed on him. Our moving away from God and doing our own thing and taking things into our own hands, our real moral guilt was placed on Jesus. But the good news for us is that our sin was paid for in Jesus and yet not one of his bones were broken. Here's what that means. It condemned him, but it did not crush him. It did not end him. See, the fact that his bones were not broken 
means that he made it out after he died alive. Death could not hold him. So here's what we have today. A savior who has paid for our sin and yet was not ruined by our sin. He is alive. And he's not holding your sin against you. And he loves you. Which means we can come to our Savior crushed by our own foolishness and brokenness because he has nail-pierced hands. So he sympathizes with us in our weakness and yet death could not hold him. So he is powerful enough to pull you out of that place and to set your feet on a rock and to give you something to sing your head off about. He can rescue you. He can help you. We are so not condemned. And so David says, magnify the Lord. Fix your eyes on him. Get your eyes off of your foolishness, your faint-heartedness, your brokenness, and get them on to your Savior. Taste and see that he is good. Let's pray. God, everywhere else in our lives, we feel the need to perform to be good enough. We feel like we have to be deceitful. We feel like we have to take things into our own hands. We, we often do. We often stray from you. We often run away from you. We often don't trust you and don't believe you. But thank you that there is a resting place for our souls. That we can come broken by our own foolishness and sin, filled with fear, that we can lay before you all of our problems, all of our worries, all of our troubles, all of our sin, and that we can know because we are in Christ that we will not be condemned, we will not be consumed, because we know, Jesus, that you were condemned in our place on the cross and yet none of your bones were broken. You are alive. You are our Savior. Would we be able to magnify you together even now? In Jesus' name.